Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 413 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find wonderful writing courses and an incredibly supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, Jet Setter, author extraordinaire, <laughs> recently back from the Yapoon, and author of The Firestar of Maven and Reeve Mystery. How are you, Al? <laughs> I reckon that's the <laughs> first time in the history of the universe that anyone's ever described me as a jet setter. Like, seriously, <laughs> if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you will know that for the most part of my life, I am here right here, just yep. in the same place all the time. But you're right, I have been to Yapoon and <laughs> I, went to the Cap- I went to the Capricorn Coast Writers, Writers Festival. Festival. Yes. And it was, it, was, uh, it was fantastic. I had a terrific time. I went via Brisbane and caught oh. up with my buddies from the oh, Your yes. Kids Next Read community, Megan Daly mm-hmm. and Alison Rushby, and we had a brilliant time planning world domination because that's, you know, clearly what we'll be doing. Of course. Um, and we had a photo shoot, would you believe, which was hilarious um, and about went about as well as you'd imagine. Um, it was quite funny. The photos are brilliant, though. Uh, it was Sarah from Little Family. I think it's called Little Family Photo Company, but I'm going to check that because I'm, I'm having a, a brain synapse. I'll put okay. the link in the show notes because she does brilliant work. Like she's so – she just sort of quietly goes about her business and you sit there and do your thing, like chat, yeah. and she kind of moves you around so that the light's good and does all that. Yes. Um, and you kind of think, There's, how is any of this going to be any good? Because, yes. you know, we're both – we're all sitting there – chatting away about our various things and waving our arms around and doing all the things that we do because none Mm. of us is particularly, um, you know, silent and still um, and doing all that. And and I thought, there's no way these photos are going to be any good. And yet (laughs) they are really, really good. They're so good. So I'm very happy with those. Um, And then I was off to Yapoon and I did, oh, so I rolled out for the first time ever Mm. my first uh, so you want to be a children's author workshop, awesome. which is a two-hour workshop um, answering, you know, the 10 most popular questions that I get constantly asked about being a children's author. And it went really well. Hooray! And I was so, yeah, I was so pleased with how it was received and how it sort of ran. Because, you know, when you you kind of get these things together in your mind and, and you, mm. you know, lean on your sister to get your PowerPoint presentation like I do, Um <laughs> And okay. it de- it's delivered and then you've got to sort of like put the whole thing together and you're never quite sure h- how it's, you know, whether you've hit all the right notes or whatever until you actually do it. Yes. Um, and so I would just like to thank, you know, my guinea pig audience there at Yapoon for being mm-hmm. such a great um, such a great group because the, it, it did go incredibly well and I was really pleased. Um, and then I also did the kids writing workshop, which was 10 Keys, Unlocking the Story Code, 10 Keys to a Great Story, which is one that I do a lot. Um, I'm actually um, heading off to a school this week to do it three times back-to-back in one morning session. Mm. Um, it is, uh, it's kind of like the basics, the 10 basics. Um, and um, I had a panel uh, with Anita Heiss and Kat Appel, which was all about writing, you know, writing for children. So it was, it was great. great. And Yapoon is beautiful. I had yeah, no idea I where must, it was. I must go there one day. You must go there. It's on the Capricorn Coast, which is sort of central Queensland. Yes. It's about 40 minutes to the coast from Rockhampton, so you fly mm. into Rockhampton. 
Um, and then if you're like me, you're lucky enough to get picked up by the lovely Chris and his little dog, Toby, oh. who likes to run across the back seat. Um, <laughs> and you, it's about, yeah, 40 minutes or whatever. And then I stayed in this place called the Ocean Apartments, which were mm-hmm. at the top of a calf-burning hill. I will just put that out there. A what? Very st- Calf burning. You know, when you walk up a hill and you get to the oh, top and your I calves see. are burning. Oh, my yeah, God. It, I had a visual of something else. Oh, no. Like it, it no. was just a, a really <laughs> steep hill, really okay. steep hill. But the view was incredible. Like it, you straight out off the coast to um, Great Kebble Island. Like you oh, just, wow. like it's right there. It was extraordinary. So, yeah, like it was great. I had a great time. And um, I will just say, too, one of the highlights of the whole thing for me. So, I met some great authors. Um, I met Hedley Thomas, podcaster, teacher's oh, pet. Yes, yes. Um, regular listeners will remember Valerie making me listen to that a couple <laughs> of years ago, um, and it was excellent. Um, um, and also a Matt Condon, who's got a new sort of uh, true crime podcast. We yeah. bonded over that because I really like them. But the headline um, authors there were Rachel Johns, uh, mm-hmm. Holly Ringland, and Anita Heiss. And they had this event on the Saturday night, which was called the Soiree Sisters, and oh, what like a great a liter- name. It was really cute. Event, and it was like yeah. a, a literary soiree, Saturday Love soiree. It. And um, the three of them basically gave a keynote speech each, 20 minutes or so each, and then there was like a, a little break and then a and a you know, um, session at the end of it. But the – and I'm just going to give a big shout-out to these women because they were fantastic. It was one of the most entertaining and interesting and informative – sort of events that I've been to in a really long time. They did a brilliant job. Rachel Johns, um, who writes, you know, what is, you know, classified as, you know, commercial or popular fiction um, and does a brilliant job. I think she's written about 35 books or something. You know, she sort of started out, Mm. you know, writing romance or trying to write romance and she talked about this and how she, you know, because she'd done a a university degree, a creative writing degree, and so she decided that writing a Mills and Boone would be an easy way to make money (laughs) and to get into it. And then she spent like eight years trying to write a Mills and Boone novel um, and then and really struggled because, you know, we've talked about it. They're not easy to get right, particularly if you don't believe. You have to believe, you know. Um, And anyway, she sort of switched to rural, rural, I always struggle to say it, (laughs) rural romance and just found her jam and went from there into what she calls, you know, life lit or, or, you know, sort of popular fiction. But she talked about book snobbery and she talked about how she Mm. was a book snob and then, Mm. you know, she writes and how gradually over time she's learned that, you know, judging a book because it's what you think people should read, not what they do read, yes. is is detrimental to everyone and how mm. all types of books have a purpose and the important thing is that people read. But, you know, she's in an area where she sells a lot of books and she has she's incredibly popular. She has, mm. you know, fans all around the world. But she's never, you know, she said, you know, she lives not far from Perth and she had only just recently been invited to speak at Perth Writers Festival for the first time. You know, wow. and yet she's been a best-selling author yes. for ten years, and it was just—it was that kind of stuff. It was talking about just it was getting us to examine how we think about literature and how we mm. think about what's worthy and what's not. And mm. she did a great job. Like as one of the, um, I overheard someone say to her, "You should do that as a TED talk because it was yes. a really, really great talk." And right. then Holly Ringland, who um, her debut novel, *The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart*, I think is what it's called. Mm. Um, was just like one of those phenomenons that was, you know, immediate debut novel published in 23 countries, 
you know, award-winning, you know, best-selling, all, you know, just, you know, the, the holy grail of all the yeah, things that everything. you would want a novel to be. All the things. And she, um, she was such an interesting woman and she, she spoke about nurturing imagination and oh. she talked about, you know, so much of our world is goal-orientated and it's all about, you know, push, 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 and that mm. we don't necessarily put enough importance into experiencing nature and mm. dreaming. Um, and she showed us the – she had a photo there of the vintage caravan that she bought recently called Freddie. Oh, Freddie wow. the Vintage Caravan is her new writing place. And uh, honestly, Freddie is immaculate. It's the most brilliant-looking vintage, like 1960s, red vinyl, the whole bit, caravan. And, like, I was kind of – I was a bit jealous of Wow. Um, but she talked about that and she's just – she's very – she's a very deeply open and feeling person. You just get that when you meet her and that came across from the stage, mm-hmm. um, which is not easy to do. Like when you're no. addressing 100 people, it's not easy to do. And then Anita Heiss, who, of course, is a force of nature in Australian yes. literature and is incredible um, mm. and I'm, I'm happy and, and lucky enough to count as one of my kind of writing friends, mm. um, she gave a wonderful speech about, you know, about sameness, about talking about the fact that writing is subjective, about how we shouldn't just accept what we read in history books because history is written by History is written by certain people. History is written by winners. I remember reading that. I remember yes. reading that in a somewhere. You know, history is written by the winners. Um, mm. And I think it's important to you know her her um, her talk was was great. She's highly entertaining. She's a mm. great speaker. Um, she wrote a rap because she was doing a. She wrote a rap. She wrote a rap. She was <laughs> doing a, a YA <laughs> session the following day, okay. um, like a YA poetry thing or something. And she goes, so so I decided that like I'd get with the kids, and I decided I would write a rap. So she tried it out on us, and it was so funny. It was great. <gasps> she's like she's so clever. She wow. writes across so many areas. She's a professor. She does. She's amazing. Yep. So yeah. So okay, I've just talked a long time about it. But I just mm-hmm. want to say, you know, go to these things. Yes. You just never, ever know what is going to blow your mind at yep. a writer's festival. And that blew my mind. It was great. And honestly, the way you described Yapoon, um, you know, even before we started recording, I think you should join Yapoon Tourism because <laughs> you have convinced me to go. So It's a lovely spot and yes. because I didn't know what to expect. Like I'd never been to Yapoon. Mm. I had to look it up before. Like I got yeah, the request me either. to go to the Writers' Festival and I had to literally like Google where is Yapoon because I had no idea where it was. And, um, and I didn't have any expectation because I, that was a far as I got where is it all right it's it's there it's on the coast mm. you know from Rockhampton and then we drove into the town and there's you know Great Keppel Island and I was yes. like wait, wait a minute where are we <laughs> and then there's all these like little bars and restaurants and That's it was fantastic very very fun yeah okay, okay so Capricorn Coast I'm open for offers if you yes. needed some you know influencer Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Right All right. So let's move on to some news this week. We have, oh, this is so exciting uh, for those of you who are interested in taking your writing further. The Australian Writers Centre is having a 30 June sale. It's on now already until, of course, 30 June. So it's a wonderful way to ensure you get your tax deductions in, in this financial year, of course. And there are so many courses that are, um, that are on sale at the moment, people will know that this doesn't happen very often at all. So go to the website, writercenter.com.au and um, check out what's on sale. 
And also, for those of you who are in New South Wales, um, you may know that you can use your Creative Kids vouchers for courses like the one run by Alison, the Creative Writing Quest well, for I'm Kids. Just, I'm, I, I just thought we might talk about it because the 30th yes. of June is approaching and you get two a year and you're essentially mm. like you're supposed to use them in the first half and the second half of the year. Um, so if you – and the Creative – like I've – I'm in New South Wales. So we yes. get the active kids vouchers, which is to get kids into sport. And I use yep. them all the time because, you know, I've got the boys off doing various sporting activities. And the creative kids vouchers, which we also get, which are, you know, you can redeem to the value of $100 with registered providers, um, they often just languish, you know. And yes, I know so that true. a lot of people's, you know, often languish. So mm. I'm just saying that the Creative Writing for Kids Quest, which is my course with the Australian Writers Centre, is a registered course it is eligible so if you've got one lying around and you've got a kid who loves writing uh, age 9 to 14 or a kid that age who would love to write better Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that that's just quietly sitting there and it's an online course 12 modules they get 12 months to do it and they get video feedback from me on their um on their completed polished story at the end personalized personalized I am talking directly to them and trying very hard to pronounce the name correctly and apologizing (laughs) for not pronouncing the name correctly and of course it's available to any all kids around Australia all kids around Australia I'm just saying I'm only I'm only (laughs) raising it now because I'm looking at my creative kids vouchers sitting here and I'm thinking other people probably have them too All right, let's move on to our giveaway this week. This is really cool. We have three copies of the book called Rum, as in, you know, R-U-M, the drink. What else would it be? (laughs) Well, it could be anything. A Distilled History of Colonial Australia by Matt Murphy. Could the Rum Rebellion have been averted if Major Johnston wasn't hungover? Would the Eureka Stockade have been different if the rebels weren't drunk? And why should sailors under 14 be deprived of their 16 shots of rum per day? 16. (laughs) These are just some of the questions raised in Matt Murphy's account of Australia's colonial history, brimming with detailed research and irreverent character sketches. Rum looks at not just how much was drunk in colonial Australia, which was a lot, but also the lengths people went to to get their hands on it, the futile efforts of the early governors to control it, and the often disastrous and or absurd consequences of its consumption. It's the story of Australia and its formation through the distorted view of a rum bottle. I mean, how Australian can you get, right? <laughs> well, it's certainly one one portion of Australian's history. I remember when we were – I remember because you, you kind of do it in grade five or grade six, you know, they talk about the rum rebellion and this, yes. you, you find out at that point that – um, you know, when Europeans first arrived here and started setting up the colony and stuff, that, that they were paid in rum. Mm. And I'm, even at that age, you know, all I knew about rum was that it was, you know, alcoholic. Mm. I just remember thinking how bizarre that that's what you get paid in. Like it, it was yes. like the, the concept of an entire kind of like col- colony being built on alcohol. Um, and then, you know, like then you look at the overall history of, of you know, that we've had for the last, you know, 200 and odd years um, and the various aspects and, and roles that alcohol's played in it. And, it's mm. you know, the roots were there right from the start, weren't they? Oh, with, absolutely. As far as that went. <laughs> so mm. entries close on the 28th of June. Go to writerscentercomau slash win to win one of three copies of RUM. That's writerscentercomau slash win. 
Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, okay. <laughs> okay, right. Okay. Okay, yeah, I'm ready. So, it's wabi-sabi. <laughs> Do you know it? I know, I, sort of. You've seen it around, I'm, right? I've seen it around and yes. I, I know that you, you don't put it on your sushi. Uh, no, that's all I know. That's as much as I can tell you. So it obviously is from the Japanese, but it is in the Macquarie Dictionary, which is my little rule of have these words of the week. And it's not something you put on your sushi. You're right. It's actually a Japanese philosophy centered on finding beauty in imperfection and the uncontrollable, often used to describe an aesthetic of design or art. So, you know, sometimes as you're going about, you know, your business and your writing and you think, oh, that's not quite right, I need to make it a bit more perfect, maybe instead embrace the wabi-sabi philosophy in life and leave it there. I really like that. I actually Mm. think that's lovely. They have Mm. that other thing too where they – they fill the cracks in things with gold, you know, to kind oh, of make yes. them stand out rather than trying to hide them. And I can't remember the name for that. Um, I perhaps think one it's... Of, perhaps one of our listeners can can remind me, but I love that as well. Like I just, yeah, there's oh, a lot I about Japanese what... philosophy and art and design that I love. I just think it's, yes. you know, interesting. Very mm. nice. All right. There you go. Wabi Sabi. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I had a great chat with Will Dean who wrote a fantastic book, um, The Last Thing to Burn, and it is a page turner. I was particularly intrigued in the, at where Will lives. Now, just we discussed that. He grew up in the UK but lives in literally the middle of nowhere in rural there's that word again, mm. Sweden, and uh, there are no distractions, so it's a really good place for him to write. Anyway, let's have a chat with Will Dean. Thanks so much for joining us today, Will. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so your latest book is The Last Thing to Burn. For listeners who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Absolutely, yeah. So The Last Thing to Burn is a tense thriller, and it's been likened to Misery by Stephen King and Room by Emma Donoghue. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very unsettling, claustrophobic story set on a small, isolated farm in the east of England. Yes, and when one reads it, it is a page-turner, 
one does kind of think, how does an author think of this premise? What goes through an author's brain to come up with this idea? So please tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. So I'm a, I, I think I'm a very visual writer. So I normally start with an image. And with this book, it came to me in 2016 at midnight, lying in bed. My wife was asleep and I had the image of a completely flat landscape viewed from above. So I was looking at it from above and I saw this, this uh, patchwork of fields and tiny little farmhouse. And I saw there was a woman there walking around the farmhouse, but she never got very far away from the house. And I came to understand that she could not leave. She wanted to get away from this place and she could not leave. And that's where the idea came from. I was brought up in that landscape in the fens in the Midlands of England. And I wanted to understand her story. What, where, why had she come to this place? How had that happened? How was she coping day to day? And how would she finally get away from this place and this man? Because the book is really only two characters mm. and one is holding the other captive. Mm. And so the, uh, the, the image that came into your mind, obviously the, the, there was the woman and as you say, there's the man and they are very, very distinct characters with very specific Mm, characteristics, backgrounds, proclivities, um, personality. How did you form these characters? How did they get conjured up into you know fully formed humans? And what and what was they so, what were they based on? Okay, so basically that's what I started off with that image from above, and then I spent about six months kind of thinking about this place and what was going on there and these two characters, and visualizing different scenes. So the, I should say that when, when the idea came to me that night at midnight, between midnight and 6 a.m., I stayed awake <laughs> the whole morning, and wow. I came up with the entire kind of narrative arc of the story. So oh by God. the time it was 6 a.m., I, yeah, I woke up my wife, and I was like, I think I've got a, a, a book idea. And this has never happened to me since. It will probably never happen to me again. But yeah, I had the entire book idea. And it's quite a simple book idea, really. It's quite a it's quite a kind of claustrophobic tale because there's only there's so few characters and it's all set in one place. Yes. Um and then so yeah, I spent months visualizing the key scenes, kind of the middle of the book, the end of the book. So before I started writing it, I un I understood those characters a little. And I right. understood the mood of the book, but I didn't have any of the detail. So that came when I wrote the first draft. Okay. So from midnight to 6 a.m., you are visualizing the entire thing or you're, you're thinking about this thing. And then you – so firstly, were you uh, in the market to write a new book at that new manuscript at that time or were you in what was happening at the time in your life and like were you really kind of ripe for that to happen but secondly you then spend the next six months thinking about it is it literally thinking about it and how actively like were you doing other things at the time and it or were you that's all you were doing just thinking about it Okay, good question again. So by that point, I was I had an agent. I'd found an agent uh, for Dark Pines, which is my debut, which is a totally different series of books set in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting for that book to be published. So I was in that time when I was doing edits and copy edits and that kind of thing, kind of getting ready to be a published author. But then I just had this idea, and I wasn't expecting this idea to come at this time. 
And I had the idea. And then I said to my agent, you know, I've had this idea. What do you think? And I didn't really tell her the idea. And she was like, yeah, if you go write it. So I wrote it in 2017. Mm. Um, and I had been kind of actively thinking about it, but I forced myself to try and think about my stories when I'm driving, when I'm chopping wood, when I'm, um, when I'm doing anything that's kind of where I'm not actively conscious about something. And then, mm. So I wrote the first draft just where I had a kind of a gap really between um, my existing book responsibilities. And then over the last four years, I've been working on it anytime I've had a weekend or a week between, you know, going to Hong Kong to talk at the Hong Kong Book Fair or going to the New York to meet publishers and that kind of thing. So whenever I've had a bit of time, I've worked on this kind of secret project, but it has been secret for years. And then my agent uh, sent it out to editors last year. Right. So after your six months of thinking about it, you write your first draft. Did In that six months, did you pretty much plan the entire, did you have the whole plot? Did was So by the time you wrote the first draft, there were no surprises? No, there you? were plenty of surprises. There were plenty of surprises. Um, I don't know exactly what's going to happen in the story. I know the characters and the mood and the landscape. So that's where I start off from. And I feel like I need to understand that that landscape and those relationships between the characters and the overall kind of shape of the story. I need to know that. But when I start writing the first draft, that's when the voice comes to me. That's when the dialogue and the, the individual kind of quirks of character come to me. And that's where the plot points come to me. So I... I understand it in quite vague terms when I start a first draft. I need to know a fair bit to have the confidence to start a first draft. But then that first draft process is where it all comes to me. And it comes to me very quickly. I wrote the first draft of this in three weeks. What? So it's quite a... <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did you not was... sleep? <laughs> Well, I'm going to say it's not its not a process that I recommend to anyone. It's not very healthy. Um, but yeah, I sleep, but I write, a, I write a chapter in the morning, a chapter in the afternoon, and then every day without a, without a break for, for 21 days, in, in the case of this book. And I never get out of the main character's head. So but my protagonist, on, you, it's... No, no, please go on. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. No, no. My, my protagonist, I never... So I see the world through her eyes. And when yes. I'm having lunch or when I'm in the evening or in the morning having breakfast, like I'm present, I'm, I'm washing up or I'm doing what I need to do, take my boy to school. But at the same time, I'm quite a zombie and I'm quite distant. And actually, I'm always thinking about the next scene. Oh, my God, I have so many questions. So um, it's like method acting in a sense. Um, a little bit. So, but you wrote it, you wrote the first draft in three weeks. Was that on purpose, like you gave yourself a three week deadline or because, or you just started and it just poured out of you and it only took three weeks. Very much like the second option. I, nothing is very much done on purpose. The way I write, I'm not very good at being commercial. I'm not very good at, um, thinking about publishing schedules. I'm not very good at plotting and planning in great detail. It's more that when I have that momentum, that urge that the story needs to come out now, then I sit down and it, the, the only way I can write a first draft is this kind of explosive exorcism where it just bursts out of me. And then, because I, I think if I was to take six months to write a first draft, 
by the end of that draft, the story would be so different from the beginning because I would have taken so much time over it. So I like to get it out of me. I like to kind of have that transfer from brain to page happen as rapidly as possible so that it comes out as pure as possible. And then I know at least I have that first draft. I have something I can work on. Did your other three books come out in three weeks? Yeah, well, they're slightly longer, so they came out in four weeks. But yeah, and th- <laughs> like this is, this is, I don't set myself a deadline. I don't have a word count that I need to hit every day or anything like that. It's just that I like to write a scene in the morning and a scene in the afternoon, and it always comes out as three to four weeks. And that's just the way I, that's the only way I can do it, really. And it seems that's completely incredible. normal to me. But when I, when I tell my author friends, they're like, what this is not normal (laughs) this is very odd but it's it's the only way I can do it but obviously you have done all that thinking time like you did your six months of thinking time as well so you really knew your characters and stuff like that um so what happens after you so you uh, three weeks go past you've written your first draft um obviously the three weeks is no surprise to you because you've done it in a similar time before what happens after that typically for you I'm very tired after that. That's the first thing. I'm exhausted. And I, I normally, um, I, I put it in a drawer, basically. I lock it in a drawer mm. for about six months. Like, it mm. depends on publishing schedules and things. But I, I like mm. to have a lot of time away from it at that point so I can get some distance. Yeah. And then after six months of kind of working on other things, because I normally have, you know, edits for other books mm. and publicity and things for other books, then... I give myself, I carve out some time for myself and I sit down and I find, I pick up this book, this manuscript, and it's almost like reading a book someone else has written at that point mm. after six months. And it's, it's, um, I'm always kind of shocked that I wrote it <laughs> in a way, like I'm surprised that it happened. And then, and then it's, at least it's something to work on. And that's a so, totally different kind of process. The first, the first draft for me is a very, very creative, fun process where I have a real buzz and a real high and there's a, yeah. it's driven by fear a lot of it and then when I'm editing and reworking things then it's much more calm and relaxed and it's not so creative and I can kind of take my time over over language and over imagery and and I I love both sides of it why is it driven by fear because I have no idea how I do this or if it will work so I always have in the back of my mind, this book might fail. I might never finish this first draft. Maybe I'll never understood, understand what the true meaning of the story is, what the, what the story is actually about. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, I'm always terrified when I start writing a first draft, terrified and excited. Yeah, right. So one of the things you just said was that you're really very much in the mind of the protagonist um, in that first draft and you're kind of living and breathing what she would or or he, you know, depending on what book you're writing, would be um, living or breathing. Now the thing is you um, are uh, English but you live in Sweden you're male, you do live in a very remote kind of, maybe you describe what kind of place you live in, in the first instance, and then I'll continue with the rest of the question. Yeah, exactly. So I I live kind of off grid in the forest, in a a moose forest in Sweden. We live a very quiet, low cost, simple life. Uh, We like where I am in the woods, if I walk in any direction from our clearing, 
we can walk for a whole day and we don't we're still in the forest and we haven't seen anybody so it's yeah. very uh we grow a lot of our own food we take water from our own well our heating and cooking is done by our own firewood so it's it's a very quiet life good for reading and writing Yes, so the isolation is not dissimilar to these to the woman in the story, but um, your you know a, 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 a male English person living in Sweden. Your main character is that you describe your main character and her background. Okay, so my main character is called Tan Zhao, and she is a Vietnamese woman. Uh, and she has uh, traveled from Vietnam to work in the UK along with her sister. And uh, she's on this farm, but she does not want to be there. So she's kind of, she's been trafficked to the UK and she was kind of tricked. Uh, she thought she would be working in retail or working in kind of a, a job where she would be able to send some money home. But actually she's been kind of sold to this farmer and he, he thinks that she is his wife or she acts like she is his wife instead of his captive so it's an incredibly um dark and and heinous situation um and that that is that is where where we are in the book so we're basically uh dealing with her trying to survive from day to day and mm. uh trying to get through to the next day and trying to have some sense of hope how in the world does a Caucasian male Brit get into the headspace and capture the voice and the internal monologue of the Vietnamese woman, young woman who's been trafficked to this place? <laughs> well, I think it is a it is a real challenge, and it's something that I take extremely seriously to try and do her justice. I would hate to write something in an insensitive way. So it's, I guess there's a lot of different things. One is research, just doing a lot of research. So those six months where I was imagining and visualizing also involved a lot of research. Um, and, and part of it is just writing with maximum empathy and from a place of love. And I think that's, it, that goes for writing any character really and any, um, any fiction, but especially so if you're writing someone with a completely different background and experience to yourself. So I think it all comes down to it. Just I have to just do my very best and try to do justice to her. And I think also that uh, the concept of hope and love and feeling trapped is universal, you know, um, regardless of what culture you're from. So, and, and they are some of I, the themes of the book as well. Absolutely. I think so too, because this is a story, this is a thriller and it's very, um, very tense, but I think it's mm. also a story of family and love and resilience. And like you say, they are kind of universal themes. And, you know, the main character in this book, she, she's in an awful situation, but she kind of, she gets comfort from various small things. One is her memories, mm. uh, her beautiful memories of her family. One is the kind of imagining what her sister is doing right now. She, her sister's in Manchester. And part of it is, uh, for example, she has one book, one possession um, in book form, which is of mice and men, and she she reads that and rereads it constantly, and that gives her a sense of escape in a way and a sense of hope. Mm. When did you actually? Can you just take us through a bit of a potted history, career history, just so we can understand, you know, what led you to now? Yeah, sure. So I, I was brought up in the Midlands in a very quiet rural place. Um, 
I was a weird kind of strange, um, quiet, bookish, uh, shy kid. Uh, loved books, loved stories. My family were not bookish at all. There were no books in the house whatsoever. Um, really? Like none of my fam, yeah, none of my family had uh, gone to school past the age of fifteen. And I was just the black sheep of the family in that I wanted to read all the time. So I used to take out as many books as I could from a mobile library that came around from village to village on a truck. Mm. Yeah. And then um, I liked school. I went to university in London, studied law at the LSE. And then I kind of didn't know what to do. So I, I, I did all sorts of strange jobs in London. And then I moved to Sweden, to the woods uh, in my early 30s, not quite thinking I would be a writer, just being a, a compulsive reader. I was just a huge reader my whole life. And then early mid-30s, I started to think maybe I, maybe I should write a story. Maybe that's what I uh, should be doing. And, uh, I, and I did that. So you never practiced law? No, I didn't. I, so at the time where, for example, my wife, uh, also studied with me, studied law. She went off and did the law thing. All my friends did. And I, I'm a very outdoorsy person. And I just kind of mm. was terrified at the idea of being in an office. So I <laughs> sold discount haircut coupons on the streets of London outdoors for two years. That's the first thing I did. Wow. Because, <laughs> and that's not a good career choice. Like it wasn't a good thing to do. But I... I don't know. I guess it took me a long time to, to work out what I needed to do. And then after that, I, um, I worked in bars and restaurants and construction sites and things. And then I went into finance and worked in finance and technology for eight years. So that was kind of my main career before this. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to do something else and live in the woods. That was always my, my goal. And then, yeah, then we made, made the leap in, uh, in our 30s. So you live in the woods, you write um, <clears throat> these compelling thrillers. Did you always plan to write thrillers? Did you always plan to write in this genre? And th did you always often read this genre? No, I still don't. I'm not even sure if I write in this genre <laughs> because <laughs> my books are kind of, kind of slightly different from most of the mainstream thrillers. Mm. And... I kind of ignore genres. I don't really like I'm very proud to be a part of the crime thriller community and there's brilliant authors in that genre but I'm I read extremely widely. I read all genres and I don't think how will this book fit in the market when I start to write it. I don't think like that at all. I'm just focused on the story and the language. So yeah. I would say that in future some of my books might will be crime thrillers and some of them might stray into other genres. And that's kind of the only way I can do it. I just have to write the story that comes to me. Mm. So you described this book as tense and there is this real slow burning suspense that you, as a reader, you really feel just being slowly pulled along. And as I said, it's a, it's a, it's a page turner. What, techniques do you think you've employed to keep that tension and to keep to make it compelling so that the reader just has to keep on going I mean it's all down for me it's all down to character it's being invested as a reader in that character if you mm. if you care about that character and you believe in that character and you stop feeling like you're reading a book and you start feeling like you're in that story Mm. then you care, 
You know, you, you're, you're interested, you care. And if you care and you start feeling what the main character is feeling, I think that you can't really help but worry for her or worry for that main character and to start being really immersed in the fabric of that story. And I think that's not a conscious decision I make. That's just something that happens when I write a first draft. And it, it's all due to reading good books, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, mm. as an adult. It's all down to reading. Reading is the key. And I owe a huge debt to all the authors that I've read for so many years because that's really, I think, how, I, how I've learned. Mm. So let's just circle back to the three weeks. <laughs> um, can you just give us a little bit of an idea of what that day in those, what a day in those three weeks looks like? Like what time you get up, what your routine is, whether you have a particular kind of hot beverage <laughs> or whether you have to chop wood in order to, to boil the water for the hot beverage and, you know, whether you even break, whether you even go to the toilet, what your family thinks of this and how they interact with you during this time. So just like really kind of a blow-by-blow description as to what that day looks like and when it ends. Absolutely. So the, the wood is chopped and stacked and dried out well before I start a first draft. So I don't have to worry about that. Um, but like in the morning, I get up at normal time, like six o'clock, walk my, I've got a big St. Bernard. So I walk him in the forest and then, and I'm thinking about the next scene all the time. I'm thinking about what's, ha what's going to happen in the next scene. I'm trying to visualize it. I'm trying to kind of think through some of the dialogue and then I'll, I'll take my kid to school, have some breakfast, and I start work around 9.30. And I guess I have a kind of a mental switch, and that is, you know, I make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, I walk upstairs and where my office is, which is a small uh, spare bedroom, I close the door, I put in my earplugs, I open my laptop, and then I'm kind of ready. It's almost like a little uh, ritual that I do. And then I'm sitting there, and I have a brief kind of chapter outline, like two or three bullet points of what happened in the chapter the day before the, or the session before. So I know where to, where to get started. And then I just dive straight in and I write that chapter. My chapters don't tend to be hugely long and that'll take me about two hours. So two hours of kind of that, that passes for me in kind of five minutes. It feels like I'm just typing as fast as I can. I'm not a particularly good typist, but I type as fast as I can. That scene is over then, and then I close my laptop and I go and have lunch and do what I need to do uh, for maybe two hours. But I'm constantly thinking about the next scene. What is going to happen? How is my main character going to handle this? What does she want out of this next scene? I'm thinking about the mood and the atmosphere and, and particular pieces of imagery. And then I'll do the same thing again at kind of uh, one o'clock, and I'll sit down for two hours, uh, write that next scene. And then when I finish writing the scene, I'll, I'll, I'll write a little note about what happens next, just a kind of a, just a, a memory prompt. Mm. And then I'll go and pick up my son from school and make dinner and do all those kind of things, have dinner with my wife and my kid. And, but I won't be very present there. Like I said, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be thinking about the next scene. And then when I go to bed, I find that a really important time just what before you, you go to sleep. Oh. Well, because your, your, your brain is kind of entering a slightly different stage you know that borderland between wakefulness and sleep is really rich in terms of your imagination mm -hmm. and i just like kind of drifting off to sleep thinking about that next scene i find that 
just really useful. I'm not consciously thinking about it. I'm just kind of, it's just kind of there in the background. And then I wake up and I'm ready to go again. And, and that happens, um, yeah, for those three weeks. Wow. Okay. So, um, after you have your career selling discount haircut coupons and not doing law and then going into it and finance, um, and decide I'm going to live in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Um, when you started writing your first novel, you know, like your old hat at this now, um, but when you started writing your first novel, what was your break? Like, and, and what was the first thing you did to try and get published? Okay. So the key thing I think to share here is that my first novel was a complete failure and is locked in a drawer and will never be published. Okay. So I didn't, I couldn't go on like a creative writing course or anything like that because I lived in the woods and so Mm. in a different country. So I, I, um, I just read a lot and then I started to write a first draft of a book and I worked on that book for two or three years and it was never going to be a good book. It was started off as a terrible book and then it gradually got better and better. And that was my apprenticeship, just hacking away and working away at this manuscript. So by the end of those three years, it was kind of totally different to when I started. And I I was submitting to agent slush piles with this manuscript for years on and off. And at the beginning, it was just blanket rejections, which was quite right. And then by the end, they were starting to get interested. You know, I got the manuscript to a place where it was better. And I was starting to get full requests and agents were starting to get interested. And at that point, I pulled it away from them. I withdrew it. And I said to myself, like, this this is not the book that you want to be your debut. This is not good enough. So I took it off the market and I I wrote Dark Pines, which was my debut. And that was, I felt in my bones, it was a more cohesive and more compelling story. And then I submitted that to Slush Piles again. And I had a totally different kind of response. I had I submitted to 20 agents off the bat and 10 of them wanted to read it kind of immediately. And then a bunch of, a bunch of them offered representation. So that was a nice surprise. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and the rest is history kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Then, then, well, I mean, you know, like any author story, there's little bumps along the way and, and, and setbacks, but I've been really lucky. Like dark pines was a, word of mouth success so that was nice you know it was just it got around by people talking about it which was great Mm. so what's next for you what are you working on now so now basically i've got i've got two publishers in the uk now uh hodder with my standalone novels and one world who published my my tuba moodison series and i've also got a um editor in the us simon schuster so basically i'm writing a standalone roughly every year so my second standalone I've just delivered, that's set in New York. Uh, and the Tuba Moody Sun books, I write one of those a year as well. So I'm just extremely, extremely busy um, mm. doing what I love. So I'm you know, very lucky. So you're essentially writing two books a year. And would it be safe to say, I mean, while this is obviously not an exact science, you kind of spend five or six months thinking about them and then you spend three or four weeks pouring them out of yourself. Is that the routine that you've kind of going that you've settled on? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's what works for me. So I have the idea, then six months ish thinking about it, then a first draft very quickly, then put it away for six months, and then mm-hmm. I work on that 
for another six months myself before I send it to my agent. Then my wife reads it, then my agent reads it, then my editor reads it. So I think from idea to publication, it normally takes three years for me with each book. Even though I write two books a year, it's like three years, the full process. Describe to me the feeling you have in because you you said that the it's a high like it's a, a exciting part is the first draft. Describe what that feels like, and then describe what happens when you've come to day twenty one and you know that it's over now. I I just feel this incredible buzz. Honestly, I, I, some writers don't like writing a first draft and they love editing and I'm the other way around. I, I just feel this huge surge of like creativity. I don't know, energy. I love the fact that I'm creating a story that's never been created before. I'm, I'm going deep myself into an imaginary world. Basically I feel like a kid again, you know, coming up with some weird story. That's what I feel like. And it's, it's thrilling. It's exhilarating for me. I get a lot of energy and a lot of momentum and I think that's one reason I write it so fast is I have that momentum because I want to tell myself the story for the first time. And that is very exciting. It's thrilling for me. And then at the end of that process, those 21 days, I am utterly shattered. I'm wiped out for a few days. I'm really like em- emotionally spent, uh, intellectually spent. And even physically, I'm very, very tired. I sleep a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to the Sorry, go on. No, no, you go. I was going to say, when it comes to the the actual editing, that takes a lot longer. That takes like six months of me rewriting. That's just a. I feel like a human again. Then I'm completely normal and <laughs> present, and it's much more of a, uh, much less of a creative thing, and more me thinking about the reader experience and about the language that I'm using and the sentence structure and that kind of thing. If it's so exciting and thrilling and exhilarating, do you not crave it more frequently and then therefore try to do it more frequently? That's a good question. I do crave it, but I kind of know deep in my bones that I can't do more than this Um, because I know that I need to have those months and months and months of thinking and visualizing before I start a first draft. And... I just don't get that many good ideas. I wish I did. You know, <laughs> if I had three or three or four good ideas a year, maybe I would try to write that. But two, two is a is a push for me. Like mm. I could do two this year and last year because I wasn't traveling, you know, because of the pandemic. But like mm. in future, I don't even know if I can do two. Maybe one and a half. So I don't know. I'm I write as many kind of good ideas that feel compelling and uh, whole as I can. And I think I normally have about two a year. Okay. Um, and finally, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who, you know, hope to be in a position where you are one day, maybe they've got their own cabin in the woods where (laughs) they can live in isolation and all they're doing is writing two books a year with these fantastic ideas. I'm I'm not very good at giving tips. I find it quite difficult to give tips. Like, who am I to give anyone else advice? But I think well, you're somebody who's written four to, books. <laughs> sure, no, I know, but I still don't really feel like uh, I understand what I'm doing, and maybe I won't for another twenty years. But mm-hmm. my first and biggest tip would be to read a lot and to read widely and to read authors who don't have the same background as you. To read books written a hundred years ago as well as today's bestsellers. To read all genres. That is then my number one tip and start today, start 
increasing your rate of reading and sacrifice other things, you know, throw your phone in another room, turn the TV off, get rid of the TV. We didn't have a TV for four years specifically so I could increase the amount of books that I was reading. And that reading is the best creative writing course you will ever do. And that is how you learn how to write and how to weave a story together. And I think, you know, if I read a hundred books a year, I'll learn something from all of them, but there's only really one or two books that I really learn from that I, it will push me forwards as a writer. And I kind of need to read a hundred to find those two. And sometimes that'll be a book that I don't like, but I learn something from it. And so, yeah, I think reading is the most important thing. And you have to, if you want to be a writer, I think you need to set aside time to read. Mm, Great. So that's tip number Um, one. Tip tip number one. That's where it all starts. Tip number two. And don't worry if you haven't been a big reader before, like start today, you know, Mm. put in your years of reading now. Tip number two is really tenacity and never giving up. Like you need to get accustomed to the fact that you're going to get rejected and critiqued. And that's going to continue even when you're a best-selling author. It's all completely subjective and it's normal and you have to accept that. So I say to, you know, I have a YouTube channel, Will Dean Forest Author, where I try and give some comfort and some tips to uh, aspiring writers or to new writers. And I say expect 100 rejections when you start querying with your manuscripts. Expect those rejections because then you won't feel uh, completely devastated when they start coming in, which they will. You know, um, nobody, nobody here writes something that everybody loves. It's completely normal for some people not to like your book. It's almost a sign of a good book, I think, when some people really don't like it and some people absolutely love it. And you avoid that kind of thing where everybody kind of likes it and gives it three stars. Like that's not what you're going for. You want something that really uh, people feel passionate about one way or the other. So I think the second tip is to not give up, be tenacious and be on your own timeline. Do not compare yourself to other authors ever. If someone else gets an agent or gets a publishing deal quickly, congratulate them. But like you're on your own path completely and it takes as long as it takes. And don't feel, uh, and being on your own timeline, don't feel it's normal to write your first draft in three weeks. (laughs) I would probably add. Because that that, maybe that's the worst thing you could possibly do. And maybe it takes three years for you. And that's fine. You know, Donna Tart writes a book every 10 years. Mm. And she's doing really well. She writes very beautifully. So like, it's exactly that, exactly like what you said. It's completely your own thing. And you have to find your own process. And that takes time. That's brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today, Will. Um, I think that that's wonderful that you're living in such a lovely, remote but beautiful area and can spend your days just writing and reading books. And congratulations on this book. Um, As I said, completely compelling and I have no doubt it's a huge hit. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you very much. All right, there you go, Will Dean. And like I said, his book was a page turner. I want to um, make a comment about what you said at the top of the podcast when Rachel John was talking about, you know, literary snobbery. And it's something that is real and it's something that you see because I used to buy my books from this other shop. 
Um, and uh, some, some it, other shop. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. As opposed to the, this shop that I buy my books at now. <laughs> I'm not gonna say where. No, I'm but, not asking you to say. I just made you laugh. No, I know. I know. But um, I would buy, and I buy a variety of different types of books. Really, very, very wide ranging. And sometimes I would buy books, and they are popular books. And I'm genuinely interested in reading them. And you could just see the lady who owned the bookshop, her look, the way she looked down her nose and the way she almost grimaced. Not even joking. And I remember saying once, oh, this is really, this has had lots of really good reviews. Have you, because I've read, I read the author's previous one. Have you read it or have you read the previous one? And the, the shake of the head and the disdain. Oh, dear. And I was almost too scared to buy books from there. Well, that's why you now buy from another shop, which we won't mention. Not that other shop, but this other shop. Yes, that's right. So I think it's ridiculous because obviously the popular books are selling and they are selling for a reason because people like them. And so I think that whichever end of the spectrum you are writing in, it's a thousand percent valid. So Absolutely. And that's the yeah. thing. That's, um, you know, if we all read the same thing, it would be an incredibly, incredibly dull world, incredibly oh, yeah. dull. So yeah. I, I just say read what you like, people. Exactly. And yeah. and write what you like. And write, and what, you write like. what you like. And write what you like to read because chances yes. are that that's where it's going to work for you. Exactly. All right. So what are you doing in the coming week, Al? That's a great question, Val, uh, <laughs> for which I have no very not, – not even one interesting response. Um, okay. Well, um, no, I do. I'll be – obviously, I'll be off doing my workshops at, at, my, at my local school, which is going to be great. Yes. Um, I'm going to be – packing boxes because, you know, the long-standing, uh, boring thing of me moving house continues. Oh, yeah. um, so I'll be doing a bit of that and, you know, I'll be preparing for the school holidays. Oh, yes, starting coming up. Like any day mm. now, they are beginning. And, uh, you know, it's it, like it's not so difficult for me these days, although it's quite funny because Book Boy is entirely overscheduled, these, these school holidays. He's got, oh. you know – Oh, he's got rehearsals for the school play. He's got mm. um, he's got study days. He's got gigs. He's got you know all of this stuff. So that's him done. But at least he can take himself to this stuff. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't. I don't. He drives himself. It's beautiful. Beautiful moment, everyone. Beautiful moment. Mm. <laughs> um, and Bookboy Junior, he there's such different children. My children. Um, mm. He also has his holidays organised exactly as as he likes, which is he's got nothing on. At all. Oh, right. Cool. Yeah. Nothing. So I like he'll that. end up wandering around with his mates and, you know, lying on the couch, I think, is pretty much how his holidays are going to go. So that's, you know, they do get older and you don't have to be quite as precise with your with your planning, but it's mm. quite funny, really. Mm. That's it. That's what I'm doing. I, I'm so cool. sorry, people. My, my jet-setting life has come to an abrupt halt. <laughs> <laughs> A screeching halt at the end of the runway. <laughs> well, I had a schedule that was almost like your the your non book boy 
child. <laughs> Book boy junior. <laughs> Book boy junior. Uh, because I was scheduled to have my COVID jab and mm. therefore I didn't book anything in because, you know, I heard that mm. you take it easy and all of that. But then, mm. of course, I've received the phone call because the government have changed everything. I've mm. received the phone call that I can't have the jab now because mm. it's, you know, you have to be You've got to swap, uh, swap yeah. the vaccines over yes, got to and swap all that. The vaccines. Yep. So yeah, but what I may be doing, Al, is um, ringing you quite frequently or oh. messaging you quite frequently because oh. you are the um, you know Alan P's of the garden world. That's probably not the <laughs> best. Actually, that's probably not the best description. The Alan P's. <laughs> that's, that's a bit me. old, isn't it? Right there. Your, your Costa or oh, your <laughs> beard and all, yes. Yeah. Because I have moved um, and uh, I previously didn't really have a garden and now I have one. And oh, I find that it exciting. takes – Oh my God. So I found, and I've also located, this is my little, what I think might be my little riding spot. Mm. But when you go sit there, you suddenly look at the garden and go, oh, that needs to happen. That needs to happen. That needs to be cut back. That needs to, and I don't know where to cut it (laughs) and I don't know when to cut it. So you might be getting, so I've been doing a lot of Googling, but there is conflicting information out there. So you may be getting some questions from me. So that I in in maybe in I need the, to come for a visit. I can you can, or a like visit, can yes. We could claim it on tax. Like you can call it like a like a consultative. Yeah, Alan for my writing piece. spot. For my writing spot. Costa is coming to visit. That's right, because I want to beautify. You know, it, I need it for the inspiration for my writing. That's right. Yeah. Of okay. You. <laughs> of All you. right. Um, where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontate.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Altate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.